0: So, in the scriptures, there are a few cases where we get what is called a
1: panoptic vision or a a vision of everything, of all time, past, present, and future. Today's lesson happens to be one of those. Uh, Some of the other prophets who have had that similar experience would be like the brother of Jared. Um, You've got Nephi. You've got John, the beloved apostle. You have Moses. Who's had this vision and – and probably many others, but you get different elements from that panoptic vision from different prophets as, once again, the Lord speaks unto us according to our language and our understanding, to quote that passage from 2nd Nephi. And so here is Enoch's perspective, this – this great patriarch living roughly a thousand years after Adam, and last week we talked about his prophetic call and his resistance to that call and the Lord's invitation to walk with him on that journey. Now today we pick up the story in verse 1 with what I I like to refer to as a wow verse, this wow, it's, it's amazing. Look at this. And it came to pass that Enoch continued his speech. You'll notice, and this is a continuation from chapter 6 where, where you've been teaching these people, and he continues that speech saying, behold, our father Adam taught these things, and many have believed and become the sons of God. And many have believed not, and have perished in their sins, and are looking forth with fear in torment for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God to be poured out upon them. That verse right there, I I like to refer to it as this wow verse because it's it's so simple, it's so profound, is God speaks to the earth through prophets, those prophets share that message, and then you and I, we have our agency. God isn't forcing our mind to think a certain way or squeezing our heart into feeling a certain way towards him. He, He just lets the prophets teach and people get to choose. And... Isn't that wording interesting, that many have believed and become the sons, and we would say, and daughters of God, but also many have believed not, and, and his description of what happens when we pit ourselves against the words of God that come through the prophets. I think it's just a, a powerful way to start this, this chapter.
0: And I look at this word, fear, when we're with God, we do not have fear do we have challenges and difficulty? Yes, but when you're not with God, the only thing you have to look forward to is the fear of the unknown, and that's all that you can get is the unknown when you are not with God, whereas with God, you know exactly what you're going to get – his eternal kingdom. It's beautiful. So then in verse 2,
1: Enoch is continuing to – to travel and – and to preach and prophesy of these things when the the Lord's voice came to him and told him to get up up upon the Mount Simeon, or if you look at your footnote there, the Hebrew equivalent of Simeon is shimon, which means hearing. It's this, God is going to open your ears, and, and from what we talked about last time, not just your ears, but your eyes and your heart as well. Get ready, up on top of this mount, Enoch, you're going to have an unforgettable
0: experience. And for any one of us, whether it's a real physical mountain or in a temple or in our own home or wherever we can find a moment of peace, perhaps a closet, if we're hearing God, that's our Mount Simeon. We're listening to God. And if you actually look at the themes of the Old Testament, one of the key themes is hear, O O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. God wants us to hear him, which is also the call that President Nelson has asked of us on a regular basis, learn to hear him. Wonderful. So, he turned. You'll notice he
1: was going one direction when the Spirit of the Lord called him to go higher. I love this. It's little words like this often that we, in our haste to read scriptures, we often overlook, but this concept where he says, it came to pass that I turned. Well in an Old Testament context, to turn means – it's the same root word as to repent. Sometimes we get this idea that repentance is this this big scary thing that we have to do when we've committed a major sin. I love the examples in scriptures where people turn or they change the way they think in a New Testament context, not because they were doing some terrible deed or – or immersed in sin. Sometimes sometimes you're on the right path and the Lord invites you to take even a higher path, and that's repentance too. It's beautiful to watch Enoch turn and take this high road up to this mountain, and then notice it says, as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory. I love that concept that sometimes you and I want to feel certain things, we want to see, we want to hear, we want to feel certain things, and sometimes it's not a matter of pushing buttons. Sometimes it's a matter – we can't always force God to do this for us, but we can respond when that still, small voice comes and invites us into one of those revelatory experiences, and like Taylor said, it doesn't It doesn't mean that we're going to go on top of a big mountain peak and have this same panoptic vision that Enoch and some of these other prophets had, but God has things to reveal from the eternities to us, specific to us in our situation, and we have to trust his timing, we have to trust his purposes, and for some, those calls come early, and for some, those calls come late, but if we stay on the covenant path, and do our best to, to live the gospel of Jesus
0: Christ, those calls will come. This word clothed is powerful. If you think about the, the purpose of clothing, many purposes. One is to protect us from the elements, Another is to provide us comfort. Uh, it also might be a way of expressing identity. So it's interesting that God himself wants to protect us, also provide us identity And the word clothed we actually could translate into the Greek and duo, which we've talked about in the past, meaning endowment. So when you go to the temple, you receive an endowment. It's a symbolic clothing of God's glory with you. Or when you are baptized, there's this powerful invitation afterwards where hands are placed upon your head and you're commanded or invited, receive the Holy Ghost. And as you receive the Holy Ghost, Perhaps this is another way of saying they're clothed with the glory of God. So, God wants all of us to have these experiences like Enoch has, where we have his power with us, that we are in his identity, and we are protected by his glory from the ravages of fallen nature.
1: I I had that experience of baptizing my little Elia, our youngest daughter, our ninth child, and to – to be able to help her enter that covenant path through baptism. I've done this with eight previous children, and it just never gets old. And then to lay hands on her head and, and pronounce that, that blessing of the confirmation as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then to say those beautiful words, receive the Holy Ghost, what an amazing thing to to feel that connection with, with the Lord and with her heavenly parents working with us as we help this little angel on her progression and development. As as it felt like she was being clothed with glory and with power in that moment, and it's it's going to to guide her on that uh, on that journey moving forward. What a beautiful thing. Sometimes. Sometimes we get so excited about the big, huge, panoptic elements of the gospel, and it's experiences like our family had that remind me uh, the power of God is manifested in these simple, beautiful ordinances and the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we continue to strive to do our best to live them.
0: The glory of God, the power of God is manifest in the ordinances. That's a great insight.
1: Verse 4, and I saw the Lord, and he stood before my face, and he talked with me, even as a man talketh one with another, face to face. Let me just pause there for a minute. There there is a lot of uncertainty in the world, um, especially in, in religious circles, among different denominations, about the nature of God, and who is he? What is he like? What is his identity? And and we would love to point to certain passages in the Old Testament like Exodus 33 verse 11 that says, and Moses spoke with the Lord face to face, but some people would then point to other verses in the Old Testament that – that say that it, it was figurative, it's – it's metaphorical, it's not literal. I love the fact that in our Restoration scripture we get so many clear examples of this interaction between God and his, his chosen vessels, the, these prophets, and here it doesn't leave any room for, for a lot of metaphorical or, or uh, symbolic interpretation. He is speaking face to face as one man speaketh unto another, and he's, he's saying, look, I will show unto thee the world for the space of many generations. So it's this – it's this beautiful condescension of God on high coming down to speak to Enoch, showing him this panoptic vision. And by the way, there are amazing things that Enoch is going to see not just from the past, from Adam's time period, but also in his own time period, moving forward and up through Noah's time period, up through Jesus's ministry, up through the restoration of the gospel and the latter days that we live in now and into the millennium and down to the end. This is an amazing vision. Now why do we care about that? That God showed such a vision to Enoch in uh, roughly 3000 BC, what difference does that make? Brothers and sisters, there's a pattern here. When Enoch is now going to leave that mountain and come and teach people, he's going to teach them differently than when he went up to the mountain. He has seen some things. He knows some things. He's not going to be overly concerned and and, and paranoid about what might happen here. He already knows how things are going to play out and he has this, this certain knowledge and this confidence in God that he can now come to these people not wondering about his place in the plan, not wondering about what God wants him to do. Now, back to what Taylor said before, just because you and I don't have these huge visions like Enoch and and the brother of Jared and Nephi and Moses and some of these other uh, great prophets of the past, the principle's the same. If we will find opportunities to connect with heaven, where heaven can make certain things clear to us. It might not come in a – in a vision like Enoch had, but when we just know things in our heart about who we are as children of God and who he is and what he wants for us, it changes us. We don't need to, to be so worried about all the bad things that are happening in the world because there are lots of bad things that are prophesied to happen, but that doesn't take our focus. We don't look around in fear, we start to look upward in faith, faith in Christ, that he really is in charge. And I just – I love this, the beginning of this vision for how applicable it is to us at our own sphere and in our own family and in our own individual uh, journey along the covenant path.
0: So let's talk about what he saw in vision and what God asked him to do. Yeah, so he,
1: he picks it up, And this whole column here on on page 21 of our English Pearl of Great Price, um, from verse 5 all the way down to verse 10, it's describing the different groups of people that he's seeing, and he's describing the type – types of cultures and nations and kindreds that he's seeing, and quite frankly, there have been many, many people through millennia who have been treated as less um, because of some of the things that are that are found in the scriptures. Now, it's not our job to go back and say this is wrong, because that was Enoch's experience. That's what he saw. And he gave us what he saw, and it's it's given to us through the prophet Joseph Smith. I love the fact that you and I live today in the dispensation of the fullness of times where. That is history, but it's not our story today. That's – that's what they saw in the past, that's how they treated each other in the past. So we don't need to try to hide it or sweep it under a rug and say, no, this didn't happen or this isn't how they really felt or this isn't how they treated people, but to learn from that in the dispensation of the fullness of times and follow our prophets, seers, and revelators. The, the people who God has appointed to give us his word today from their panoptic visions, whatever those have entailed for them, and what we're hearing from our prophets and apostles today is that we need to root out all forms of racism from among us, that we need to treat each other with kindness and respect, and we are all children of loving, heavenly parents, and we need to, to live as if we actually believe that in in all of our interactions with people across this world. So as we jump back into now Enoch's ministry, he, he picks it up in verse 13, so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God, and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command, and the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness." Can you imagine this? You get this city that you've been working with and you've been teaching these people and they get so righteous and they they become so prosperous, so rich, um, that these other nations want to come and plunder this city and as they come, Enoch defends them by the power of his word alone and and while we don't know exactly what this looks like, the clues that were given us there in verse 13, that had to be fascinating to watch Enoch defend the city using rivers turned out of their course and mountains moved and the cry of the, the wild beasts out of the forest. They, they can't – they can't attack this city and prevail because of the power of Enoch and his word speaking for the Lord. Um, Notice verse – the bottom part of verse 13. So powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the word of the language which God had given him. Did you notice that? He's getting it's, – it's all a reflection of God coming through Enoch. That, that invitation in last week's lesson, walk with me, I'll justify all your words, I'll make the rivers flee and the mountains move, but you've got to walk with me. Well, Enoch's done that and now amazing things are happening. So rather than you watching this in the 21st century or studying this passage thinking, wow, that must have been really amazing for Enoch and for those people to watch these these amazing miracles, that is true. Mm -hmm. We are not taking anything away from that experience back in that day. But brothers and sisters, the real power of that story is the mountains that God is going to move in your life, the rivers that he's going to help you turn out of their course by the power of your word that you've received from the Lord alone, whether it be in your individual life, in your family, in your career, in your church callings, in your interactions with with loved ones or other people in your circle of influence. If you will just trust the Lord and move forward in faith with the things that he's given you and keep his commandments, live the gospel to the very best of your ability, then he is going to move mountains for you. He will move rivers. You will have help from from the forests in a variety of symbolic ways as we
0: move forward. And what's interesting about these passages is they really capture our interest. I mean, these are spectacular events. Extremely spectacular. I mean, how often in scripture do we hear of events like this? It's extremely rare, and so we can get so excited about these phenomenal things that have occurred and perhaps wishing we were there that we may miss the moment-to-moment, day-by-day effort that Enoch and all the people who chose to follow him as God's appointed servant, all the work that they put in to be kind, to repent, to love one another, to share with one another, right? We may get distracted by these phenomenal events that we forget that, huh, how many years of faithfulness and humility and prayers and diligence, the very things that we're asked to do every week when we come to church, it's usually the same message. Trust God, follow him. We go to general conference, the messages usually are the same basic core principles, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And this, this section here, which I love, I find – I love reading this, it gets me excited, sure. but when I just pause, I think, this only happened because these people paid the price of righteousness to trust God. They put themselves in a position to be qualified for these things, and we can do the same.
1: Yeah, you know, Taylor, it probably would be helpful for context if, if you look at verse 68, right there at the very, very, very end of this uh, incredible chapter, the second to last verse. Notice it says, and all the days of Zion in the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. I think that's, that's helpful for context to what you're saying here, that we read this story and we think, wow, he went up into the mountain, had this vision, came down, preached to the people, they all repented right then they get rich, conquering armies come, and he defends the city, wow, it all happened within that, that year. Do you, do you really understand how long 365 years are? If, if, if you start doing math backwards from, from this year, you're going back a long time. So to put this in context, let me give you an example from, from our dispensation. In the October 2012 general conference of our Church, that was the 187th semiannual conference of the Church. So it put the Church's age at 187 and a half years old, which happens to be exactly half of 365 years. So think about that. In 2012, we were at the halfway point of what Enoch was accomplishing in that city living in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Brothers and sisters, this is significant because the Lord is doing his work now in the whole world. It's now globalized what in Enoch's dispensation was accomplished, localized. In
0: one city. In one city with one prophet who had that that continuation. And we actually don't know how many people were in that city. Anciently, cities could be five to ten thousand people, you know, the size of like two or three stakes in Zion, or maybe four or five, but I mean that's – you know, you give yourself 365 years with ten thousand people, you might be able to get them all on the same page. We're talking eight billion people in the world.
1: Yeah, our work is cut out for us. Don't expect that Zion and all these miracles are going to happen this coming week because we studied it collectively as a church for Come, Follow Me. Um, We – we move forward together both individually and collectively on that covenant path. It took them a long time, and we don't know at what point in that progression that – that isn't it interesting, 365 years, that's how many days are in a year, so this is a year of years. We don't know when all of the specific examples happen here, we just know that after 365 years, it seems as when they're translated, they're taken up, and they, they were no more on the earth.
0: So again, it's, this is exciting. I, this is one of my favorite parts of scripture is reading Moses 7 and what God can do for his people, and then I have to remind myself, I need to do the small and simple things every single day and just endure to the end and let God do his work. And even though I'd love to see all this go on in my life, um, I realize that my faith shouldn't be dependent on God doing these many mighty miracles.
1: Amen to that. Now, we shift gears down to – let's pick it up in verse – verse 16. From that time forth there were wars and bloodshed among them, these are all the people of the land, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. I just love that line, they dwelt in righteousness, we're going to see it again here shortly. And the fear of the Lord was upon all nations, so great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. They don't – they don't – they don't dare anymore fight against uh, Enoch and this city. Now verse 18, and the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. What a beautiful description of a heavenly setting on the earth, where y- you've y- – you you do not have the same heart and the same mind, you'll notice we have one heart, one mind, we dwell in righteousness and there is no poor among us. There's – in the in the kingdom of God, there is this, this oneness, there's plenty of room inside of this congregation of the Lord for all kinds of unique abilities and capacities and people who have different propensities and struggles and skills and successes. I love the fact that what God is doing here with Zion is exactly what nations have tried to do to create this unity. Uh, Realizing that some of you watching aren't from the United States of America, um, but it's interesting from – from a perspective here in the States, one of the, the founding principles of the United States of America is just that the United States, it's that idea in the Latin of e pluribus unum, from many, we're going to make one. So we have, if you look at a map of the United States or a map of your country or wherever you live, it's that idea of you have all these different places, but we decide that we're going to come together. And we're going to become unum, one. We're not going to focus on the pluribus, the individuality and try to do our own thing. There are certain times when we say, you know what, we're going to come together in – and in this context, for Zion as a Church, it's in the cause of righteousness, and as we do that, we're going to make sure there's no poor among us, and we're going to try to have our mind and our heart drawn heavenward and outward rather than the world's invitation, which is to put all those arrows facing inward on me, me, me. What do I want? What do I need? What can you do for me right here, right now? This, this Zion uh, perspective is at the, at the foundation of what we're trying to do as a collective Church across the world what Enoch accomplished in this one city, and what a – we just have to say what a pleasure it is to be engaged with so many amazing people across this world who are striving to build up Zion on the earth.
0: I can say amen to that. I've traveled to lots of places around the world, and for the most part, people are good. People want to live lives of prospering and kindness and goodness. Um, I want to build on this. My wife, when she learned that we're going to be working on Moses 7 today, sent me a link to Elder Christofferson's talk from October 2008, and here's some of the things he shared, and he harkens back to in Church history when the early saints tried to create Zion, and they all had covenanted to make a Zion community, and things didn't go well. And we look back and we're like, how can these people have done this? And it's interesting, so here's what um, Elder Christofferson quotes from the scriptures, D&C 105, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil and do not impart of their substance as become as saints to the poor and afflicted among them and are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. And in D&C 101 verse 6, there were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore by these things they polluted their inheritances. Elder Christopherson then says, rather than judge these early saints too harshly, however, we should look to ourselves to see if we are doing any better. Zion is Zion because of the character, attributes, and faithfulness of her citizens. Remember, the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. If we would establish Zion in our homes, branches, wards, and stakes, we must rise to the standard. It will be necessary, first, to become unified in one heart and one mind. Second, to become individually and collectively a holy people. And third, to care for the poor and needy with such effectiveness that we eliminate poverty among us. And here's where I think is this crowning jewel of Elder Christopherson's statement, this next phrase, we cannot wait until Zion comes for these things to happen. Zion will come only as they happen. And I will add, we are the ones that have to choose to make it happen, just like the people in Enoch did over many years, deliberately acting in the cause of righteousness.
1: That's beautiful. So this, this is not a call to, to lose your identity or to abandon your identity, It's a call to embrace it within the cause of Christ, within the cause of building up Zion and unity and oneness. That we need what you uniquely bring to to earth with you from heaven. We need everybody in this effort. And uh, it's a beautiful concept. E pluribus unum. Now, Jumping down to verse 21, it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth, and he beheld in low Zion in process of time. Did you catch that? In process of time. We've we've been mentioning this over and over again, that these things just take time. You have to – you have to be diligent over a long period of time. Zion was taken up into heaven, and the Lord said unto Enoch, behold, mine abode forever. So that's great. Enoch is seeing that Zion is going to be taken up, and we don't know at what point in his ministry, at what point of the 365 years he saw that, but he already saw the end from the beginning, so he can go in and teach with incredible confidence. That's why I love when you watch our prophets, seers, and revelators, the leaders of our church, when they speak, they're not – they're not exuding a whole bunch of fear or anxiety or – or panic. They – they seem to be a lot calmer than many of us sometimes speaking of the future, while also warning us of some of the struggles that are going to come down the road in the future. Because
0: they can see, that's why they are seers, Yeah. seers.
1: So you're watching that as Enoch now has seen his city taken up, and then he sees the residue of the people in verse 22, and he sees all nations of the earth before him in 23, and he's high and lifted up in verse 24 – notice the descriptor here – even in the bosom of the Father and of the Son of Man. And behold, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. So did you notice that? Enoch now finds himself caught up into heaven in the bosom of the Father and of the Son – and now he's watching the earth from a more heavenly perspective, an elevated perspective, and what he sees is phenomenal. Look at verse 25. He saw angels descending out of heaven, and he heard a loud voice saying, woe, woe, be unto the inhabitants of the earth. And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. What percentage is that, Taylor?
0: Too many too much, 100%.
1: The whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. Now I have a simple question for you. Do you think that from a a pre-mortal perspective, because we were living in heaven, and I don't know whether or not we got to be there and watch part of this vision with Enoch, I, I don't know, that's not scriptural, but let's just assume for a minute, that we did get to see this, and we're, we're leaning over the railings of heaven, looking down at the earth, and we see Satan with this dark chain that veils the whole face of the earth with darkness, and then he looks up and laughs at God, and all of his angels rejoice, saying, look what we've done to your earth down here. My question for you is, what do you think Enoch's response might have been at that point? What do you think your response might have been if you're allowed to watch it? Do you think that knees start shaking together? Do you think teeth start chattering? Do you think people are filled with fear saying, oh no, don't send me down there anywhere but that earth? Or do you think Enoch perhaps stood just a little bit taller? Do you think you perhaps, if you got to watch this, and once again, we don't know, but if you got to watch it, do you think you stood a little bit taller and maybe kept raising your hand saying, "Father, here am I, send me." Because Jesus taught us how to appropriately use that phrase? I, I don't know, but it's worth pondering that I don't think Enoch is saying, "Whoa, don't 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 send me back down there." that's a scary place. I don't think he's looking down in fear. I think he's standing there in total faith saying, I want to go and I want to do everything in my power to push back that chain of darkness and to get out the sword of the Spirit and cut that chain every chance I get to push it back. And quite frankly, I am thrilled that chapter 7 doesn't end in verse 26. I love that this vision goes on. You've got to know the opposition and it's there, but look at verse 27, and Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven. What are these angels doing? They're bearing testimony of the Father and Son, and the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. If we could look through this camera lens here in the studios of Book of Mormon Central and look through your device or your computer or your TV, I think that it wouldn't be a a stretch to say that we would be looking at a group that fills verse 27's intent, that yes, there's a dark chain, yes, there are terrible things happening on this earth, but how does God solve those issues? He sends angels and not all those angels are dressed in white clothes with with shining lights. Some of those angels are you and some of those angels uh, are your loved ones who have come before and who will yet be born. And what do they do? They come down to this earth and how do we push back the chains of darkness that blind and bind and deafen people? We bear testimony of the Father and of the Son. So that the Holy Ghost can fall on them. I've noticed, Taylor, in many years of teaching that the Holy Ghost doesn't seem to come and witness of the big, huge mysteries. It's more the sensational feelings of of the hair raising on your neck and your arms, the ooh, that's cool, but the parts where I found that the Holy Ghost is the most prone to come and be the actual teacher in the classroom is when I'm talking about Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. He seems to really love to verify their, their existence and their love and their reality and their power.
0: I would give a hearty amen to that, that when we focus on what truly matters, particularly on the Godhead, we're inviting the Holy Ghost, a member of the Godhead, to be there witnessing to the reality of the other members of the Godhead. And what greater joy than have the Spirit with us testifying that God's our Father, Jesus is His Son, and that Jesus has done the work that we can be reunited. Jesus and God all want us to be part of that grand unity, that oneness that we've talked about. And so, if wherever you're at in your life, if you feel like, I need to feel the Spirit a bit more, invite the Spirit in by reflecting on the nature and character of God and his Son, Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating about this is we learn right here in these upcoming verses more about the character of God and who he is as your parent, your divine parent, and what that means for us as we suffer and struggle through this life. Wonderful. So.
1: Speaking of that, the, the tender nature of God, in this next part, Enoch doesn't look down at the problem. He looks at the solution. He, he looks at God. Verse 28, it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept, and Enoch bear record of it. How touching that must have been for Enoch, this great prophet, to look and see God weeping as he looks down at this planet. And he is so confused. Enoch asks this question, how is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as rain upon the mountains? And so so he asks the Lord, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing that thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? I think that's a a simple way of Enoch saying, you have worlds without number. Why, why are you crying over this little handful of people who are really struggling in a big way on this planet? It happens to be Enoch's planet. You'll notice that he describes that expansive nature of God's creation in verse 30 in a quite unique way, uh, hearkening back to what we covered in when, – when you studied Moses chapter 1. Look at verse 30, were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, and thy curtains are stretched out still, and yet thou art there, and thy bosom is there, and also thou art just, and thou art merciful and kind forever. So he's he's piling on this question, why are you crying? You've got all of this, and your creations are so expansive, we – We can't even begin to imagine them. Why are you crying over this group of people? God gives a fairly lengthy answer here. Verse 32, the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. And I gave them to them the knowledge in the day that I created them, and in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. So he's saying, Look Enoch, this isn't just like some some random thing that I built out there these these are my children and I gave them their agency and I also verse 33 gave them a commandment that they should love one another and that they should choose me, their father but behold, they are without affection and they hate their own blood. he then describes. These other attributes, the fire of his indignation, is kindled against them, and in hot displeasure he's going to send floods upon them, for his fierce anger is kindled against them, as they're as they're destroying each other, and and everything that he set up for them.
0: It, it seems to be um, foreshadowing what's going to happen in the story of Noah. If you look carefully in Genesis six, when God actually is disturbed. By the cry of the blood of the righteous to him, and this is all connected to the same thing. It's like, how could people hate each other to the point that they want to kill one another, that they want to shed each other's blood when my son will shed his blood, and that's to be sufficient, that everybody can return to me. You don't have to shed one another's blood to get gain. I will give you everything if you accept the shedding of my son's blood. And so he's foreshadowing that he was going to send the floods in the time of Noah to kind of do a blank slate and start over with the new Adam, Noah, and his family. Exactly.
1: So in verse 35 he, he continues on, behold, I am God. Man of holiness is my name, man of counsel is my name, and endless and eternal is my name also. Oh, those, are, those are big,
0: big titles <laughs> as he's talking to Enoch. And none of these show up in the Old Testament. Correct. These are incredible for understanding the character, and nature of God. I'll just pause here for a moment. Throughout a lot of the Jewish and Christian history, as people have tried to understand the character of God, they sometimes have taken in what we call the philosophies of men to understand God, and there was this great Greek scientist named Aristotle, about 300 B.C., and he argued that only perfect things existed in the heavens and nothing could impact them, nothing could move them. Nothing could change them. Nothing could cause them to be challenged in any way. And so the Christians are like, oh, that must be God. So God himself, if he's on the heavens, nothing can influence God in any way because God's over everything. And so there's this belief that God himself had no emotions because, well, if he has emotion, that means that he can't be in control of himself. And it's so interesting, we have this revelation saying God actually feels deeply. He is wanting to be tied to us in covenantal relationship and he feels the loss when those covenantal connections are severed because of our actions. And when he looks down and sees his children hurting one another and hurting themselves, it causes him to weep. It's actually, it's a glorious doctrine that doesn't show up in other religious traditions. Now we're not saying this to disparage other religious traditions, but only to say the magnanimity of the restoration to learn that God has us in his heart to the point that in one of the greatest visions of all time, a prophet observed and recorded him crying and weeping over the suffering that he sees his children experiencing. So, know that God understands your pain. He knows how you feel and he will weep with you. But this is just part of the character of God, that he's holy and counsel, but he's also full of love, emotion. The God that we worship
1: uh, is vulnerable to our – to our experiences. Now isn't that fascinating that one of our baptismal covenants is to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort? Jesus will do this with Mary, at the death of Lazarus. He's going to weep with her because that's what she needed, and sometimes we're going to find various ways to, to fulfill this with other people um, in our lives as well. Now look at verse 36. Wherefore, I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made. Remember, millions of earths, back in verse 30. If you go back to chapter 1, Moses 1, verse 32, 33, worlds without number have I created. So again, I can hold all those creations in mine hand, and mine eye can pierce them also, and now this last part of verse 36 is critically important. Among all the workmanship of mine hands – what's that percentage again? 100%. Okay. There has not been so great wickedness As among thy brethren." I I don't know how to interpret that other than literally for God to basically say to Enoch, welcome to the most wicked earth among worlds without number that I've created. There is a degree of difficulty attached to this planet of ours, and that's not an invitation to sin. It's not an invitation to indulge, say, oh, now I can go do anything I want and blame it on the, the wicked earth. No. Or to give up. Or to give up and stop wrestling, because every one of us have wrestles, and God isn't – isn't wanting us to celebrate our perfection. God is celebrating our wrestles and our our efforts to move forward on that covenant path and to have faith in him and to trust him. God is celebrating with us when we work with each other to lift each other up and move forward on that covenant path. It's just it's this beautiful perspective that, yes, we live in a very, very wicked world that has a dark chain veiling the whole face of the earth with darkness. I don't think that applies just back to Noah's time period. I think in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the wheat and the tares are growing together. I think there was never a time where it was easier to be good, and I don't think there was ever a time where it was easier to be bad, and those contrasting decisions that we get, and there's a whole bunch in the middle as well, but those contrasting decisions are so stark for us today, and rather than beating each other up when we, when we struggle or beating yourself up, an opportunity to say, help me, Lord, I need help, because this is very difficult. So that verse is loaded With potential implications when you start thinking about questions like, wait a minute, if Moses chapter 1 is accurate and God created worlds without number through his only begotten Son, and D&C 76 verse 24 says that by him and of him – or by him and through him and of him, the worlds, plural, are – and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God, it starts to get really big questions in our mind of, wait a minute, why, why are you on the same planet that the creator of worlds without number was born on and performed an infinite atonement? Who are we, really, and why are we here? I don't know all the answers to those questions, but I do know that at some point in the pre-mortal realm, I don't think there was a giant set of dice that were rolled and that you were randomly assigned to come to this earth at this time and in the place and the location and the setting that you were sent. I think God knows exactly what he's doing in sending you where he sent you, when he sent you, to help carry this kingdom off triumphant. To help push back that chain of darkness that is not just in the world, but it's in our homes sometimes. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our, in our congregations. It's in our workplaces. It's, it's in the mirror sometimes. We need help to, to accomplish this effort of pushing back that chain of darkness.
0: And I love how God actually finally responds to Enoch about the, this weeping. But behold, their sin shall be upon the heads of their fathers. Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, and the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore, which means why, so essentially, why should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? So, it's not that God is actually lamenting the wickedness, it's actually he's weeping over the pain and suffering that wickedness causes. God's not for wickedness, but He hates to see that his people suffer, needlessly, and that's why he invites us to come to him. So, and that's why he also goes on and says, well, I'm going to bring these floods to to, start over.
1: But, But don't you find that interesting that it begins with God weeping, and then he says, all the heavens weep, and all that he has created weeps, and we're going to find now that Enoch becomes more like God. In the process of time. Um, We're going to come back to that in a minute.
0: And there's actually just a fun little analogy here that the floods are almost a symbolic weeping of all of God's tears flooding the earth.
1: Absolutely. Beautiful symbol. Now look at verse 39, and that which I have chosen – so you could just circle the word that and write uh, Christ above that – and that which I have chosen hath pled before my face – wherefore, he suffereth for their sins." Did you catch that? Here we are, up in heaven with Enoch, with the Father and the Son, he's seeing this and he sees God weep, and then God tells him, and that which I have chosen hath pled before my face. He's pled with me, let me take their sins upon me, not let me go down and destroy them, but let me Let me own all of their sins, all of their struggles, all of their pains and sorrows, all of their imperfection. Let me have that. And then he goes on to say, inasmuch as they will repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me, and until that day they shall be in torment. Then he says, wherefore, for this shall the heavens weep, yea, and all the workmanship of mine hands. So he repeats it. Second time he's talked about this. And what does that cause? Verse 41, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Enoch, and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men, wherefore Enoch knew, and looked upon their wickedness, and their misery, and wept. Now because Enoch – he's not just looking at a handful of people and seeing numbers, a small, teeny, minuscule percentage compared to all of God's uh, creations. He now knows some things. God has taught him to the point where he he gets it at a far deeper level, and it causes Enoch to now weep, and not just weep, notice this, stretched forth his hands – or his arms, and his heart swelled wide as eternity, and his bowels yearned, and all eternity shook. Enoch is feeling this very, very deeply, what God is feeling. That is the, the essence of empathy, compassion, is it not? To be able to, to relate to what somebody else is experiencing, what they know, what they feel, which now leads us to Enoch seeing Noah build the ark, in verse 42 and 43, and in 44, with bitterness of soul, Enoch wept over his brethren. And he said unto the heavens, I will refuse to be comforted. But the Lord said unto Enoch, lift up your heart, and be glad, and look."
0: There's actually a word play here. The word Noah in Hebrew actually means rest or comfort, and so this is part of the reason why Noah is called this, is that God will bring comfort to the earth in the time of Noah, and it's just this fun little delights that God packs into Beautiful. the scriptural record. Beautiful in those
1: ancient languages. So, so here's Enoch watching the saying, When? When is this going to, to be resolved? And look at verse 45. It came to pass that Enoch looked, and from Noah he beheld all the families of the earth, and he cried unto the Lord, saying, When shall the day of the Lord come? When shall the blood of the righteous be shed? That all they that mourn may be sanctified and have eternal life.
0: He's like somebody reading a good book or watching a movie, and they're like, I don't know, a quarter of the way through, and there's all this like tension, and they want the conclusion immediately. He's like, I want to guess, how does it all end? And God's like, I got a plan here. Just hold on, this will all get worked out.
1: Now, there's some of you who are watching this who have perhaps recently lost a loved one. There's some of you who perhaps have recently lost your health some of you maybe, or somebody you know has recently lost a job, or somebody you know has lost their faith, or a child, or the list goes on and on and on. I love the fact that we have all of this this infinite number of struggles that we can face in life, but there's only one solution. And it's the same answer, it's the same solution for every scenario that we can face that that could cause pain, anguish, and sorrow in this life. And that solution has a name, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that which was chosen from before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God, who who was sent down to, to... take all of this upon him. Look at verse 47, behold, Enoch saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man, even in the flesh, and his soul rejoiced. Did you catch that? On that page we were just on before, he was weeping, he was lamenting, his bowels were yearning for for comfort, and now his soul rejoiced, saying, the righteous is lifted up. You'll notice that's present tense, not future tense, but it predates Jesus by roughly three thousand years. There are a variety of ways you can refer to this, but sometimes you'll hear it referred to as future perfect tense or prophetic past tense, where because a prophet sees something in the future, they can speak of it as if it's already happened or as if it's already happening, which is exactly what's happening here. The righteous is lifted up, and the Lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. That's why Nephi can repent. That's why Abraham can have a remission of his sins. That's why Adam and Eve and all of their posterity can take full advantage of the infinite Atonement of Jesus Christ, is because God, who knows all things past, present, and future, is able to give them the power of that infinite atonement of Jesus Christ even four thousand years before Jesus is going to be born because it's the prophetic past tense or this perfect verb tense from a God who knows all things in an eternal now. Um, Verse 48 says, and it came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, he heard a voice from the bowels thereof." So now the earth herself is speaking, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men! I am pained, I am weary because of the wickedness of my children! When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? So now the earth joins in this lamenting and this pleading with God for, for peace and for, for things
0: to work out appropriately for her. And again, this wordplay, rest, it's Noah, that this new Adam where God is going to reset the creation on the earth to once again put his covenant upon his people and create a platform or the, the earth where we can actually work out the plan of salvation. It's
1: wonderful. So then Enoch now cries to the Lord, O Lord, wilt thou not have compassion upon the earth? Wilt thou not bless the children of Noah? And so he tells him in verse 50, it came to pass that Enoch continues to cry unto the Lord, saying, I ask thee, O Lord, in the name of thine only begotten, even Jesus Christ, that thou wilt have mercy upon Noah and his seed, that the earth might nevermore be covered by the floods." And God covenanted with him in verse 51, and we know what the symbol of that covenant is, that rainbow that was given to Noah as a sign for every future generation that he will no more destroy the earth by a flood of water ever again. And verse 53 says, and the Lord said, Blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come, for he said, I am Messiah, the King of Zion, the Rock of Heaven, Which is broad as eternity, whoso cometh in at the gate and climbeth up by me shall never fall. Wherefore blessed are they of whom I have spoken, for they shall come forth with songs of everlasting joy." You'll notice Jesus is going to pick up that motif in his ministry when in in one setting he tells them, I am the door to the sheepfold, and if you come in some other way, you're not of me. my my sheep come in through me. And I love this this comparison here, that if you come in through him, you shall never fall. Brothers and sisters, that is – that is so simple, and it is so profound. If we actually trust Jesus and just do those small and simple things that he's asked us to do in the gospel, we don't even have to be 100% perfect, we're not celebrating your perfection. We're celebrating your pro- progress, your wrestles, your striving to move forward on the covenant path. His promise is very sure you will not fall. And then he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And can you imagine what verse 55 looked like from Enoch's perspective up in heaven? Standing next to God and next to the Son of God. In that setting, look at verse 55, and the Lord said unto Enoch, look, and he looked and beheld the Son of Man lifted up upon the cross after the manner of men. This, this incredible vision, three thousand years roughly before Jesus is born, and he sees the solution to all of our problems is an ultimate condemnation of the only perfect person to ever walk on this planet. How that must have caused Enoch to feel and then he sees the the resurrection and the saints coming out of the grave in 56, the prisons opening forth, spirits able to come out. You could tie in all kinds of temple uh, work here, this idea of opening wide the prison gates to allow the captives to go free. And then verse 59, after Enoch had asked him when the earth was going to rest, the answer comes with Enoch beholding the Son of Man ascending up unto the Father, and he called unto the Lord, saying, wilt thou not come again upon the earth? Forasmuch as thou art God, and I know thee, and thou hast sworn unto me, and commanded me, that I should ask in the name of thine only begotten, thou hast made me, and given unto me a right to thy throne, and not of myself, but through thine own grace. Wherefore I ask thee, if thou wilt not come again on the earth. And the Lord said unto Enoch, so here's his answer, as I live. Now, we just have to pause there for a minute. In Old Testament times, when you're making – when you want somebody to believe you, when you want to say, I I promise, I, I swear that I'm telling you the truth, they don't do it that same way back in the Old Testament. They would swear by certain things, and the pinnacle thing to swear by is as the Lord liveth. You'll see that in the Book of Mormon.
0: Yeah, Nephi does this.
1: Nephi will do that with his – with his um, experience trying to get the the brass plates and with Zoram. It is this ultimate – as God lives, I'm telling you the truth. Well, Now here's God doing that. As I live, even so will I come in the last days, in the days of wickedness and vengeance, to fulfill the oath which I have made unto you concerning the children of Noah. That's fascinating because now, in Enoch's vision, now we've come to the last days. Now we've come to our time, and God has promised him, as I live, I will come again in those days of wickedness and vengeance. And the day shall come that the earth shall rest, but before that day the heavens shall be darkened, and a veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heavens shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulation shall be among the children of men, but my people will I preserve." Did you catch that? We've heard from our prophets recently that there are troubling things coming. There are days that are going to be very difficult coming, and they're not telling us that so that we we get anxious or start uh, fearing. They're telling us so that we can prepare, so that we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in God and in Christ, not in the things of the world that are going to let us down. Notice, my people will I preserve. There are going to be some terrible things happen, but Continuing that on, verse 62, righteousness will I send down out of heaven, truth will I send forth out of the earth to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men, and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare, and holy city." that my people may gird up their loins and be lurking, looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem." Are you noticing the, the contrast? Noah, in his great day of wickedness, God swept the earth with a flood.
0: A physical flood.
1: physical flood wiped him out. And in the latter days, right before the millennium, he's also going to flood the earth, but not with water, but with living water, with the testimony of God, with light and truth and power and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the flood. It's the gathering of the house of Israel that he's going to, to perform in our day that is this flood. President Ezra Taft Benson loved using this phrase – I don't know how many times he used it – that we need to flood the earth with what?
0: The Book of Mormon. The
1: Book of Mormon, which is that scripture that God has prepared to gather the elect for this last time as we work in the
0: vineyard of the Lord to produce this fruit. Well, I see the Book of Mormon in here, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. And I also love this phrase, and righteousness will I send down out of heaven. That's you. You've been sent down out of heaven to be here and you seek after righteousness. There's a reason you're here engaging in a scripture study, because you thirst after righteousness. You're part of this grand plan to sweep the earth with a flood of goodness and righteousness. We don't – all of us individually have to be at all places and all times. That's God's work. But he can send you to where you are right now to bring righteousness, and I just love how we are all part of this incredible story of flooding the earth with goodness and light. It's so powerful when you take that
1: In your domain, in your circle of influence and do the best you can with the people who are surrounding you to reflect a little more of heaven's goodness, a little more of the light that God has given you into the lives of people around you, that's how he's going to do his work, as you bear testimony of Heavenly Father and of Jesus Christ, sometimes with words but all the time, with your actions and the way you treat people and the way you, you live your life. That's how we build Zion. Uh, look, at, look now at verse 63, and the Lord said unto Enoch, Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. It's this grand promise that at the second coming of the Messiah, he's going to come and bring with him Enoch's city, Enoch's band, Zion, The Zion from heaven will come down with Christ to meet Zion that has been built up in the dispensation of fullness of times on the earth, and we come together, and we enter now this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ that is described beautifully in, in the next few verses here. There shall be mine abode, and it shall be Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations which I have made, and for the space of a thousand years the earth shall rest." <laughs> what a glorious day when, when we're not focused on all these telestial issues that we're facing uh, when, when the earth rests. Verse 65, "...and it came to pass that Enoch saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man in the last days to dwell on the earth in righteousness for the space of a thousand years." Here's yet another scriptural witness testimony that Jesus is going to return to this earth. Enoch has seen it happen. Our prophets are preparing us for that, and the reality is, is you were sent to this earth at this time to help prepare the world for the second coming of the Savior. Whether or not you're alive when he comes or whether you're caught up out of the grave to meet him at his coming is irrelevant to the notion of doing everything you can to prepare Zion and the world for his second coming. It doesn't matter, we, we don't know the future of how many years I have or you have or any of us have to live or how long until that second coming is going to occur, but this week, I can try a little harder to be a little more like Jesus in the way I treat people, and that will help prepare the world for his second coming. So now let's finish with verse uh, – these last few verses, 66. But before that day he saw great tribulations among the wicked, and he also saw the sea that it was troubled, and men's hearts failing them, looking forth with fear for the judgments of the Almighty God, which should come upon the wicked. There is so much peace. There is so much safety in keeping the commandments that God has given us. There's so much love and peace and tranquility that comes in keeping the promises that we've made, not just to God, but to each other, and doing the best we can. And when we don't do the best we can, to acknowledge it and to ask. Each other and God to forgive us and and to repent and to forgive freely as we collectively keep coming together to move forward. This – because there's plenty of tribulation in the world, it's nice to create a little piece of Zion in your home and in your heart and in those relationships, especially those that are closest to you. And verse 67, and the Lord showed Enoch all things even unto the end of the world. And he saw the day of, right- of the righteous and the hour of the redemption, and received a fullness of joy." For those of you who have felt like you've lost a sense of, of hope for a brighter day or feel like, why even try anymore? It's just too hard. The, the challenges that you've been given, they've just mounted up and they're too – too big, they're too heavy, and you can't carry that burden anymore, we would hope that this lesson, this vision that Enoch had would give you enough hope to move forward today, this coming week, this coming month, this coming year, to to strive to be a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Enoch has seen our redemption. He's seen the end of the story, and he gave us a little glimpse of it, and it's It's beautiful. Uh, He received a fullness of joy from it, and he tells you then in verse 68 that it it was 365 years, right there, that's that verse that we talked about before, and now the final verse. And Enoch and all his people walked with God, and he dwelled in the midst of Zion. Do you remember the invitation last week in chapter 6, where God had given the prophetic call to Enoch, followed by the invitation, walk with me? Well, Enoch did more than that. He's done more than just walk with God. He's realized, I, I don't want to arrive in heaven alone. I want to bring as many people with me as I possibly can. So you'll notice what he did, and Enoch and Can you circle that word, and? And all his people walked with God. And he dwelt in the midst of Zion, and it came to pass that Zion was not, for God received it up unto his own bosom, and from thence went forth the saying, Zion is fled. Let the same be said of each of us in our life, that when we come to the end of our days, that we and all that were with us that we could, within our power, without taking away people's agency, that we invited as many people as possible to come and walk with God as well, so that at the end he takes us up unto his own bosom. What a glorious promise. Brothers and sisters, we aren't being asked to have faith in In a God because of words of other people who just have faith and have a good, strong feeling in their heart. We're asked to have faith in Christ and faith in God and faith in the Holy Ghost based on eyewitness accounts, based on people who have experienced and seen and participated in things that is far beyond belief, far beyond faith, it's experiential, and they have seen the end from the beginning and they're inviting us to walk this path that leads to that glorious end. So to finish off today, our invitation is to not focus on the dark chain that that covers the whole face of the earth that Satan's holding in his hand, but rather to focus on a God who feels your pain, who feels your struggle and rejoices with you with your successes. Uh, That God could make your life so easy, could take away all the pain and all the sorrow and all the loss and all the hurt and all the temptation like that, but he doesn't because he's giving us opportunities to grow from our own experience as we rely on the Lamb of God who was sent to be the solution to all of our problems from before the foundation of the world. We know he lives, and oh, how we love him. And we leave this with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.